If you turn to the book of Mark, now I'm doing a bit of a jump. We were in Genesis last time I was with you, and now we're in the book of Mark. And I know that Pastor Anthony went through this portion of Mark with you back in 2016, and I am sure, I have no doubt, that you have been avidly reflecting on your notes, so you know, you're aware of the cultural context and everything for Mark, so that's fantastic. He can check you at the end of the message. Uh, so we're not going to spend a lot of time going back through the book of Mark and, and, and the context, because you have that. But I'd like you just to start in verse 1 of Mark, just to remind us what Mark is saying. And Mark 1.1 says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is Mark's focus. Then what is he telling us about Jesus Christ? He says, the Son of God. Mark is showing us that Jesus is, without a doubt, God. And he goes on and says, as written in, the, in Isaiah, the prophet. So Jesus is indeed God and he is the suffering servant of Isaiah. And we're going to be in a passage today in Mark chapter 5, which Jesus' power and his authority and his acumen, his, his readiness to, to accept that title of deity is on full display If we remember back to the end of chapter 4, Jesus had displayed his authority over creation. He had calmed the sea, remember. In the beginning of chapter 5, they had gone to the the area of the Gerasenes. And there was a a guy who had a demon, who was demon-possessed there. And Jesus cast the demon out. He demonstrated his power and authority over the demonic forces. And tonight, as we look at Mark chapter 5, verse 25 onwards, we'll see Jesus' power over illness and death. So look at Mark 5 with me, and we'll read the passage actually as we go through it tonight. But what we'll see as we look at this passage today is that Mark chapter 5, verses 25 to 34, demonstrates that Christ, the great physician, has power over the incurable. He has power over the incurable. And we see this so that you might have absolute confidence that no one is beyond his ability to save. No one is beyond his ability to save. And we're going to see this play out in three scenes, this reality. And first of all, we'll see, so we're thinking about Jesus as the great physician. First, we'll see his patient in verses 25 to 28. Then we'll see the cure in verses 29 to 32. And lastly, we'll have the consultation in verses 33 to 34. Well, we join the story in verse 21, firstly, with Jesus and his disciples. They've come back over the Sea of Galilee uh, and they've come to Capernaum. As I said, Jesus has just demonstrated his power over nature and the demonic forces. And he arrives in Capernaum and in verse 21, we're told that he crossed over again and a large crowd gathered around him. It was inevitable wherever Jesus went that a crowd came and we're told it was a large crowd. And right off the bat, we see this amazing meeting with him and Jairus, the synagogue official, the the leader 
who has cast all his cares aside about what his Pharisee friends might think. And he comes and he falls at Jesus' feet in the middle of this crowd and begs Jesus to come and heal his dying little girl. His faith and his dedication are just wonderful to witness. And we feel drawn immediately to this tenacious father. And Jesus goes with him. And he goes off to save his daughter. And you can imagine Jairus' heart at this moment is, is pounding with excitement and with, 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 with tension. He's thinking, just get home. Just get home. We can imagine before maybe him by his daughter's bedside and receiving the word that Jesus was coming. And he immediately gets up and he goes out to meet Jesus. And his thought is, just get to Jesus. And we can imagine him fighting through the crowds, using his influence and his authority to get there as quick as he can, telling people to move aside, just get to Jesus. And then all of a sudden he's at Jesus' feet and Jesus agrees. And now his thought is, just get home. Just get Jesus home. And verse 24 is painstaking. He went off with him. And a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. Just get home. But the people were thronging. There were so many, they were pressing in. And if you've ever had to move through a crowd like that, it is impossible to move at any kind of pace. Rachel and I lived for seven years in Hong Kong. And in Hong Kong, there's an area which is, at the time, the most densely populated on the planet. 130,000 people per square kilometer. And when you're out there walking the streets, you cannot move at your own pace. You move at the pace of the crowd and you are pressed, you are pressed in side and front and back. And all the smells and all the sights and all the sounds that go along with that being jammed in with all these people are like this. And you cannot move at your own pace. And we can imagine the panic in Jairus' mind thinking, are we going to be too late? Why won't these people just move? Just get home. And then, in the midst of this rescue mission, in the midst of this great physician being taken to his patient, we see tentatively, quietly, another character coming into the story. We see another patient. And with any patient, there's a medical history. We don't always get given it. With Jairus' daughter, we're not given it. We're not told much about her. But this patient, her medical history is spelled out in great detail. So let's look at the patient in verse 25. Let's read verses 25 to 28. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse... After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I'll get well. Mark explains straight away that the new person is a woman uh, and she doesn't have a name. But the two verses Mark gives us here give us some key pieces of information about her. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it. We're going to mention them and move through as Mark doesn't spend a lot of time on it either. Firstly, she had had a hemorrhage for 12 years. And the Greek literally says, being in the flow of blood. 
So she had been constantly bleeding for 12 years. And Matthew 9.20 is actually where we get the word hemorrhage from, which is interesting because you would expect Luke's account to have the the medical details. But that's where we get that word from. And some people believe it was a a uterine hemorrhage, but in some way she had some kind of gynecological bleeding constantly for 12 years. And next we're told that she had endured much at the hands of what passed for medical practitioners at that time. And the word translated endured much is literally suffered. She had suffered under the treatment of those she had gone to for help. The treatments at that time were primitive, silly and and unhelpful at best. Painful and torturous at worst. One can imagine the desperation she felt year after year with her funds being depleted, becoming more and more desperate. Not just for her lifestyle, but for herself, for her life itself. Because with this constant loss of blood, she would have been weak, anemic, low iron, open to other illnesses. Her immune system would have been deficient. And as her helplessness grew, we can imagine the ends that she might have gone to. Those back alley disreputable charlatans and crooks who prey upon such people who are so desperate. And as a result, we see that she has utterly depleted her funds now. And being destitute, she's come to this point in her journey now where she's worse off than she ever had been. And Luke makes a comment in Luke 8 verse 43. And remember, Luke was a doctor himself and he gives his expert opinion and he says that she could not be healed by anyone. All the money... All the effort, all the pain had been for naught. She was beyond help. One of the most painful aspects of this ordeal for her must have been the isolation. Due to the nature of her ailment, she was ceremonially unclean. And this is why we're given this detail, to build the picture of her desperation and for us to understand who this person was but also to settle the shock in the minds of the original readers of what this woman does. She, This woman has entered the crowd. According to Leviticus 15, this woman should have been an outcast. She was to separate herself from people. Turn to Leviticus 15 with me, and we'll see what uh, the response to this uncleanness should have been. Leviticus 15 verse 25 Now, if a woman has a discharge of her blood many days, not at the period of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond that period, all the days of her impure discharge, she shall continue as though in her menstrual impurity, she is unclean. Any bed on which she lies, the days of her discharge shall be to her like her bed at menstruation. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, unlike her her uncleanness at that time. Likewise, whoever touches them shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean till the evening. The picture is, anything she touches is unclean. Her bed, her couch, wherever she sits. So anyone who was around her, anyone in her life, couldn't be there. She had to separate herself from them so that she doesn't make them unclean. And she had been this way for 12 years. Now we don't know whether she was young or old. But the reality is, whatever her life was before, it was utterly changed. So she she was to separate herself, potentially, from those 
She loved friends, family. She was alone. But more importantly, the greater issue is that she couldn't go to the synagogue or the temple. There was no one to offer a sin offering or a burnt offering for her. No one to make atonement on her behalf. She was not only separated from people, she was separated from God because the sacrifices couldn't be made for her until she was clean, until the blood had stopped. Doesn't this just reflect the state of sin? Isn't this woman's plight just a perfect representation of the lostness and the rejection and separation that sin causes in the lives of all people? For all who have not accepted Christ, sin has truly divided them from God. They are outcasts. They are enemies. They are unclean and unable to approach a relationship with the one who made them. Until this ailment has been remedied until they've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. They're separated. Where is your heart this evening? Have you sought out remedies to an internal deficiency in places other than Christ? Have you sought comfort in business and work? Have you chased fulfillment through family and children and friendships? Have you gone searching for contentment in entertainment and lust and greed? And Because these are the remedies that the societal physicians of today promote, don't they? And just like the woman who was unable to find a physician or a doctor who could cure her physical ailments, the world is unable to provide us with a viable remedy for the real ailment in our lives, the sin that destroys from within. And if that's you... Take heed tonight. Take heed of the physician that you will meet in these pages and emulate the woman that we'll see in this story who later will fall at the feet of Jesus and confess the truth of her state to him. Open your heart to the truth that you'll hear and consider the lostness of your soul without one who has real answers to your greatest need. Now, as we look at this woman, we not only see her uncleanness, her separation, we see a little bit more. And Mark will show us this. Having built this heart-rending image, really, of this poor woman, Mark drops a a cultural bombshell. If you want to go back to uh, Mark chapter 5 and verses 27 uh, and 28. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. This unclean woman has entered the crowd. Now, for us, the impact is minimal. We think, nah, no problem. But for those at the time, we imagine the shock and the outrage if anyone had discovered her. Because if she had touched anyone, they would have become unclean. We've already had the scene painted for us, the crush of people, the hustle and bustle, the, the inevitable physical contact. Who knows how she made her way through the crowd, but however she did it, she would have been physically touching everybody that she went past. Imagining if she had been separating herself, it must have been overwhelming for her, disorienting. What is she doing? Well, this is what we call a last-ditch attempt. How can things get any worse for her? She is willing to risk the ire, the anger of anyone who recognized her. She's willing to be assaulted or killed. She is ready to do anything. But like Jairus, 
just get to Jesus. Presumably, she's heard the stories and we're told that she had heard about Jesus. And we can imagine anyone who had any kind of medical issue like this uh, and was outcast in some way or separated in some way probably had heard about him and the stories. Maybe she had witnessed his ministry from afar. Maybe she knew more about his ministry than we're let on. But either way, she was resolved. She believed. And she put that belief into action, which is what we call faith. She believed that he could do what she heard that he could do. And she put that into action. And we see the extent of her faith in verse 28. If only I might just touch his garments. So strong was her faith in him that she didn't feel the need to announce herself to him, to touch him physically, to call out to him, to demand anything. She believed, just as Jairus did, that the smallest intervention from him would be enough just to touch the garment. As much as we see the faith in this woman, what she was doing and thinking wasn't uncommon. If you turn over the two pages, probably to Mark 6, verse 56, we see this. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. So it was normal for people to crowd him and to even just want to touch the fringe of his cloak. Now, when Antony preached this, he dealt really well with the significance of the touching of the fringe of the cloak. Um, so I'm going to advocate you go and listen to his message if you want a little bit more uh, information on that because we just don't have time tonight. So this was a common occurrence at the time and something that was known then. If you flip back the other way to, to Mark 3, verse 10, we see it again. For he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions passed around him, pressed around him in order to touch him. So this idea of people trying to touch Jesus was common. But Mark uses an interesting word here in verse 28 to describe what the woman thinks will happen when she touches him. And the word you might see there, depending on what version you have, is uh, she says, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Well, that word in the Greek is the word saved, sozo, and we're going to come back to that later. She, she believes that if she just touches his garment, she will be saved. As I said, we'll come back to it later. But at this point, we might ask what she thinks she'll be saved from. From her illness? Will she just have relief from her torment, from the bleeding? From the hands of the doctors that have added so much to her suffering? From death? Is her illness gotten so bad? Has she gotten to the extent where she knows that she's going to die soon? Or is there something more to her attitude? For her, does she realize that Jesus offers maybe something more than just physical healing? The text doesn't say, but whatever her thought at this moment, it has driven her towards Christ. And in the midst of the thronging crowd, in the chaos and the clamor, she somehow reaches Jesus and she touches his garment. And the word used for touch there means to grasp, to take hold of, to cling to. And just for a moment, we can imagine everything that she was feeling that moment. She reaches out and she grasps the tassels of his garment. Doubt, fear, hope, resolve, all coming together at once as she reaches out 
and grasps her final lifeline. And in that instant, her world changed. Now, usually when a physician sees a patient, you have a consultation, and then you have the administration of the remedy. And Jesus doesn't do things, you know, the conventional way. So we've already, and what we see now is the cure. So we've had the patient history, and we go straight to the cure. Let's read uh, what happens to her. Immediately, verse 29, the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. It worked! It worked! After 12 years, after this agonizing search, after, after all these doctors and, and, and all her money and everything she had poured into, everything she had been through, the moment she touched Jesus, she was healed. And Mark, up until this point, has been going slowly, but now he uses his favorite word, if you remember, immediately. And things pick up. And maybe for her in that moment, through all the joy, things spiral a little bit out of control because she's been discovered. Jesus, in the center of this furor, calls out all over the noise, who touched my garments? Now let's remind ourselves of a few things about Jesus here, and this is really important. Firstly, Jesus is fully man and fully God. He is one person, two natures, divine and human. He is not a split personality. He's not some hybrid human Greek mythological demigod. He is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity incarnate. The Holy Spirit doesn't sit inside him like some inanimate force for him to wield at various points whenever he needs to do miracles. Jesus, the God-man, operates inseparably from the Father and from the Spirit. And he tells us in John chapter 5, he gives us an example of this. Turn to John chapter 5 with me. John chapter 5, and you'll see in verse 17, Jesus is being persecuted for doing miracles on the Sabbath. And as Lord of the Sabbath, he answers them and he says, My Father is working until now. So my Father is unceasingly working. And then he says, I myself am working. And that what he's saying there is he is doing the same work as the Father. And in verse 19, he says, unless it is something he sees the... Sorry, he says, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. That's in the same way. So Jesus and the Father aren't doing separate things alongside each other, they are doing the same thing. So when Christ acts, or when the Son acts, the Father is acting. And when the Spirit acts, the Father is acting and the Son are acting. All three members of the Trinity are present and working of their one essence. Where one works, the others work as well. Therefore, we see this moment where the power goes out from Jesus And he calls out who touched his garments. We must understand in his deity, Jesus knows exactly who touched his garments. 
Because he is the one who healed her in that instant. This isn't some mechanical thing he doesn't have control over. And I noticed that when I listened to um, to Anthony's message, he quoted the same person I did, which made me feel comfortable. Um, Alfred Edersheim, he held this position as well, and he speaks about Mark's use of immediately here being misunderstood by many and adding to the confusion. He states that when immediately is used, it relates not to Jesus perceiving. So it's not that Jesus then, oh, he immediately then realized, oh, this power has gone out from me. But the immediately is referring to him turning around and looking. Edesheim says that Jesus is not just suddenly aware of some detached process where power leaves his body without his will or his knowledge. The immediately is relating to his turning to look for her. And, and then we notice what verse 32 says. Look at verse 32. Uh, sorry, back to Mark 5, verse 32. And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. How does he know it's a woman if he doesn't know what he's done? So Jesus clearly is aware of what's going on. He knows it's a her. (laughs) He knows to look out for a woman. Edesheim continues by saying this, the forthgoing of the power that is out of him was neither unconscious nor unwilled on his part. You see, if all people had to do to, to trigger something from Jesus is to crush around him and touch him, this would have been happening all the time. If this was just some mechanical thing that was disconnected from Christ's will, it would just be happening all the time. So, and we'll look at this later, but the the catalyst for this was her faith. Her faith, not the touch. And we'll come back to that in a bit. Jesus makes it clear in verse 34 that the key for her was faith. Her faith. And since her salvation was determined before the foundations of the earth, it was God himself who gave her that faith to carry this out, and because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit do all their work inseparably, there is no way that Christ could be fully God and not have known whom with whom whom he was healing. So why say it? What's the point? Well, first, let's look at the response he gets from his disciples. And guess who the loudmouth is? Guess who gives the sarcastic response? Yep, Luke 8, verse 45 tells us that Peter... Uh, essentially gives the report back to Jesus. He says, um, Lord, do you realize where you are? Look around. Look at all these people. Of course someone's touched you. And I imagine at this point, while Jesus is having this exchange with the disciples, we're told, I think it's in, in well, it's either in Luke or Matthew, we're told that people were denying it, saying, oh, it wasn't me. And, and he's having this interaction with the disciples. I can imagine Jesus scanning the crowd and finding the eyes of the woman. And I think that's why he called out to get her attention, for her to look around, to have this interaction. Because both Mark and Luke tell us that she knew that she had been discovered. And here is where we see the final and most important part of her interaction with Jesus. The patient has been cured. And now comes the consultation. Let's look at verses 33 to 34. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And we'll pause there. The woman, knowing she was discovered, comes before Jesus and she falls down at his feet. She prostrated herself. This was a common response with those who had recognized who Jesus was 
or who were uh, coming to him for, with a plea of help. Mark 3.11, we see evil spirits falling down in front of him and, and shouting out, you are the son of God. Mark 7.25, a woman falls at his feet and begs him to, to, to heal his daughter, her daughter. Luke 5.8, Peter recognizes his sin and falls down at Jesus' feet after the miracle Jesus does with the fish. Luke 8.28, the demoniac falls at the feet of Jesus. This is a posture of submission and humility. And we're told that she was fearing and trembling. Well, what does this tell us about what she was thinking? Why was she afraid? Well, fear was also a common response, and Mark records it really helpfully for us. Remember back in chapter 4, what happened when Jesus had calmed the storm? The disciples were afraid. What happened when he had healed the garrisoned demoniac? The people gathered, and they were afraid, and they asked him to leave. What was the response of the demons within the garrison demoniac? They were afraid of Jesus and they begged for his mercy. Fear is a common response to Jesus. But why did she, why was she afraid? Why did she have fear? Was she afraid because she'd been caught touching him and that he would turn her over to the people? Was she afraid that he would undo the healing that she had just received? Was she afraid of his rebuke for just touching, touching him without asking? Now we can imagine all of those things might have been in her mind. But I think Mark gives us the answer here in the verse. He says, the woman came fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened. In some way, she understood what had happened. And we have a decision to make here as to how we read this. Is she a superstitious, selfish, opportunistic woman who was caught in the act and now is throwing herself on the mercy of her betters uh, and to, to, yeah, to beg for his forgiveness? Or is she a destitute, desperate woman who had the faith to approach Jesus and who trusted in his power to save her? And now that she was discovered, she comes before the one who saves her and falls at his feet. My money's on the latter. The fear and trembling, I think, is a mixture of incredulity and excitement at her healing. And I think the fear is caused by the dawning of realization as to who this man was. Who can do these things? Who can heal when no one else could? Only God. He is the one who can heal, who can truly heal. He is the one who has the power over the incurable. Where all human wisdom failed, he succeeded. Where superstition and ritual could not help, he brought aid. Where all her own attempts at saving herself had fallen so far short and he exceeded her wildest dreams. Where her impurity kept her separate from the touch of humanity, he had, in, in, in essence, reached out, not physically, but he had reached out into the depths of who she was and mended her. A greater touch than any physical touch from a person. He took her uncleanness away. He was truly one who brought cleansing where no other could. And this is why she falls at his feet. In gratitude and in awe and bewilderment. And instead of defenses or excuses, oh, but I just did it because of this, she tells out her soul. She told him the whole truth we're told there. She fell down before him and told him the whole truth. 
And we can imagine her pouring out everything that she'd been holding in for all these years. And Jesus' response to what she says, I think, affirms the assertion we've just made about her character and her status with Jesus. Look at verse 34. And he said to her, daughter, daughter, is there a more tender, gentle, loving, kind response that Jesus could have had to her? She pours out her heart to him. She conveys the struggle and torment of that nightmarish decade. And we can imagine her bracing for his response. What will he say? And he calls her daughter. We have no record of Jesus addressing anyone else in the Gospels that way. Daughter. And I believe this is the first of three reasons that we can assert that this woman was a follower of Christ. A disciple. Firstly, he calls her daughter. Now, it could just be a gentle, reassuring comment. But this is a familial term, isn't it? This is something we could only call someone who is in close relationship to us. I'm not going to call anyone else except my Lydia daughter. Jesus uses the term, the, the male term too. He calls one other person son. And that's also in Mark, in Mark 2. The paralytic in Mark 2, he says to him, son... Your sins are forgiven. And that's not like in the way we use son. You know, come on, son, sort yourself out. That's, that's kind of not what he's saying. He's saying, this is an affectionate term. He's saying, son, your sins are forgiven. He calls the paralytic son as he forgives his sin and draws him into the family of God. That's why he's a son. So it would make sense that he would use the same address for the woman if she is now in the family of faith. Secondly, Jesus says, look there in verse 34, Daughter, your faith has made you well. What a wonderful truth. And something so important for us to see. It wasn't her tenacity, her drive, her willpower, her cleverness, her resourcefulness, her boldness, her willingness to break the cleanliness rules, her physical strength to push through the crowd, or any other powerful woman thing that you could say. Nor was it her physically touching the garment. It was her faith. It was her trust in Jesus, her belief in him and put into action. And what's so amazing about that? What's so amazing about the fact that it was her faith that saved her? Because faith is a gift. It's not even something she possessed in the first place. It was a gift given to her by the very one who she was speaking to. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says what? For by grace you have been saved through Faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Why? So that no one can boast. Her faith wasn't something that she created herself or she mustered up. It was something given to her by the great physician. Faith, that word, pistis, in the Greek, is used only five times in Mark. Two of the uses of Jesus exhorting people to have faith. And the other three are as follows. The paralytic we've already mentioned in Mark 2, where he says your faith, your sins are forgiven. The blind man in Mark 10, where he says your faith has made you well. And then we're told he immediately followed him on the road. And then this passage. So each time in Mark, the use suggests that the person in question had a true and saving faith beyond just belief in Jesus as a man. 
And what compounds this statement by Jesus is that he doesn't use the word for being made well or healed. There are two words here. Notice he says, daughter, your faith has made you well, one word, and then go in peace and be healed. That's a second word. That word healed is the Greek word isthi. That means to be healed. But the word he uses first is that word I mentioned before, sozo, saved. Daughter, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. And it's clear from the primary context of everything we're looking at that the the main use of the, the idea of saved here is her physical salvation from her illness. But one commentator notes that Mark uses the idea of being saved to refer to receiving eternal life and entering into the kingdom of God. Thinking about his interaction with the rich young ruler in chapter 10. And in chapter 10, at the beginning of that pericope, the rich young ruler comes and he asks, how can he inherit eternal life? And then in verse 26, he reiterates and he says this, how can anyone be saved? So it's making it clear that he associates this idea of salvation with eternal salvation. So there's a link within Mark between sozo, the idea of being saved, and and salvation in some way. The same commentator qualifies it, and he goes on to say this. The primary meaning of sozo in this passage, Mark 5, is, uh, or does relate to, the deliverance from physical difficulty, since being saved is parallel to being healed from affliction. Yet even in this passage, sozo, that word saved, seems to point beyond mere physical healing from a particular affliction to a greater sense of wholeness and well-being, since the woman's deliverance allows her to live in peace, which is what Jesus says next. This is the third aspect of Jesus' response to her that's amazing, and he says, go in peace. Now, what does he mean here? Peace with who? Peace with herself? Peace with those around her? No, following the statement that her faith has saved her, the peace that she must have is peace with God. Romans 5.1 directly speaks to this order of reality for those who follow Christ. It says this, Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But why peace? Why do we need that peace? It's because in Romans 5.10, it makes it clear that if you are not for Christ, you are against him and he is against you. If you have not fallen at the feet of Jesus and accepted his kingship over you, if you have not repented of your sin and accepted your need for an almighty savior, the one who can deal with your sin, then you are, as Romans 5.10 says, an enemy of God. That's why you need peace. Peace not in a fluffy, zen-like, spiritist uh, kind of fashion where you're just kind of one with the world or content in your life. This peace is a guarantee that you will not face certain death and punishment at the hands of a wrathful and just God. This is a peace which means for the woman that she has not just been physically healed, not just that she's been made ceremonially unclean and able to rejoin society, but that she is at peace in her spirit with the eternal God who created her. She has been justified and sanctified. And almost as a tag on at the end, Jesus says, and be healed in your affliction. And be healed in your affliction. And the word there for healed, as I said before, 
It can mean to make whole or to be free from. Jesus says, you're free now. Be free. Free from her sufferings, both physical and spiritual. Now, we're not done yet. We said that we would see this evening that Mark 5, verse 25 to 34, demonstrates that Christ the great physician has power over the incurable so that we might have absolute confidence that no one is beyond the ability to be saved. And we've seen that. She was beyond all reach. She was beyond all help. But there's another part of this that we just need to make clear. The only reason this assertion is true, the only reason that this makes this good and helpful is one key facet. No one is beyond the ability to be saved. Why? Because Jesus is the one doing the saving. It's all of him. It's because this Jesus Christ, this God-man, the one who in this very story has displayed both his humanity and his deity in full view for us to see. Why is this so special? Because the woman's not the main focus. It was always him. It was he who ordained the woman to have this difficulty in her life. It was he who set her heart for her to come to him that day. It was him who willed that she would reach out and touch his garment. It was he who, by the power of the Spirit, will, uh, healed her as she touched his garment. And he, who from before time even began, before the world was even created, he had decided to call her daughter. And he, through the inseparable work of the Father and the Spirit, according to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, gave her that gift of faith, which enabled her to enter into relationship with him. She did nothing to earn that gift, not through a force of will of her own, not through her own tenacity or willpower, not because she was so downtrodden and desperate. That gift was given to her at the pleasure of the great physician. And it was the same physician who, in a few years, would go to the cross to pay the price for that woman. Why is he the great physician? Not because he can cure physical ailments, but because he is the one who has mastery over the thing that causes those ailments, sin, sin and death. And he is the only one who can cure the incurable. I wonder earlier when we talked about her touching his cloak, if you notice what was not mentioned When she touched him, he should have become unclean. Mark makes no mention of that. And actually, in all of the instances where Jesus is touched by the untouchables or touches one of them, there's no mention of him becoming unclean. That's because he made them clean. That's the incredible thing about Christ. Interaction with Christ is a a drawing near to him, is a leaning into the light. It's a stepping from the gloom into a sunbeam. It's, It's running towards the sun, which causes the darkness of sin and shame to flee. Jesus, only this Jesus, is the one who makes clean the uncleanable. He washes the unwashable, and he restores the unrestorable. So as you look back on your life, I don't know where many of you come from. But maybe you're tempted to say, I'm beyond help. I've done too much. No one can save me. I'm too far gone. Look at how evil I am. Look at the depths of my sin. 
Well, look at the woman before you on the pages of Scripture. She was the epitome of one who could not be helped. She was a lost cause. And she went to the one who specialized in lost causes. And this is what you must do too. The good news of the gospel is good news because nobody is beyond Christ's ability to save. Because he is the great physician and he calls you to repentance, to come and throw yourself at his feet, to confess him as Lord and he will save you. And if you're a believer tonight, this is your God. This healer of the impossible. He is the one who brought you to salvation. He is the one who has taken your impurity on himself and paid that exacting price. He, knowing all our sin and our shame, seeing our failures and our faults, being witness to our weaknesses and our worldliness, he went to the cross for those things and he promised to be with us as a result. He sent his spirit to dwell within us, to help us, to guide us. And this should fill our hearts with joy and gratefulness and confidence that no ailment, no trial, no struggle, no matter how horrendous or how difficult, if faced alongside with Christ, is insurmountable. Painful? Yes. Cause us incredible difficulty, incredible struggle, grief and torment? Yes. Insurmountable? No. And maybe you're going through that period of trial right now. And your struggle and and your affinity for, for the woman's struggle in this story is all too strong. Then trust tonight that these truths are real. That although you may not be granted healing, you may not receive the answers you desire, you may lose that loved one, or those issues at work may never get resolved, or in your personal life it may only get worse. But remember the example of the woman who at the height of her suffering ran to Christ. Just get to Jesus. In our weakest moments, our flesh wants to take over and pull away from him. But we must trust the one who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. According to the power that works within us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story. Thank you for this piece of history which records for us your son's incredible demonstration of his power that there are none beyond his ability to save. Thank you for the reality that you are the one who provides the gift of faith. That we don't need to try and muster that up in ourselves. Thank you for the promises that Jesus makes, that if we will only come to him, if we will seek him out, if we will come before him, then he will not turn us away. Thank you for the reality that with you in us, and you on our side, and us not being enemies of you any longer, that there is no trial that is insurmountable, that there is nothing that we cannot face with you at our side. Lord, I pray for those in this church who are struggling. We do think of Lauren uh, and his operations his countless times before the doctors and uh, the issue with his foot. 
Lord, we pray for that, that this may be close to the end for him in terms of having to have all these procedures. Lord, may you give him strength to persevere. And I think of of anyone else in this congregation too. I pray for, for Anthony, for strength for him as he leads. Would you lift him up? Would you strengthen him? Would you encourage him? Would you give him these small graces day by day that would spur him on? to continue on in his incredible faithfulness to you over all these years. We thank you so much for him and the example that he is in this place. Most of all, Lord Jesus, we we thank you that there is nothing that's beyond your touch. We thank you for saving us, for your incredible gift on the cross of your life. And we hope that tonight our time together will be pleasing in your sight. We pray this all in your name. Thank you.